Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to John. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tried out by his, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and this is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then the disciples came. They were astonished at what he was speaking with the woman And no one said, What do you want, or why are you speaking to her? 
Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is rejoicing fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It is an odd feeling to be giving a sermon to an empty congregation, at least one that is physically present. There is something powerful about being with people, experiencing things together. Experiencing joys and sadness, victories and defeats. And so it makes it all the more painful that in this Lenten season, we have to fast from being close to one another, at least physically. I encourage all of us to find ways in which to connect virtually in other ways. Call on those who are at home who may be afraid to get out. Call on those who are most vulnerable Check in on them. See what they need. Let them know that somebody cares. I cannot imagine a more appropriate uh, collect or prayer of the day than one that we find today in which we pray that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves and we ask of God to keep us in our bodies and in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may attack the body and from all evil thoughts which may attack our soul. The last time that I was in a fight was January the 28th, 1986. I think I was in third grade, and the only way that I can remember it was because that was the day that the Challenger exploded. It was a monumental day in 
um, the life of America in the 1980s. This was a time in which the first teacher was going to go to space and students around the country gathered to watch it. In a Netflix special, Dave Chappelle notes how traumatizing it was for him to see the Challenger explode as a child. Chappelle then notes that this kind of trauma is now ubiquitous thanks to the media. The Challenger, he says, explodes every day. How can we care about anything, he asks, when we are asked to carry, care about everything? My point is, Chappelle, Chappelle tells his audience, a guy your age wouldn't know the pain because with your generation, it's like a space shuttle blows up every blanking day. How can you care about anything when you have to care about every blanking thing? The result, he, can, he says, is pure fatigue. You can't keep track. And I'm paraphrasing now, leaving out his saltier words, so you just give up. And we are tired, and when we are tired, what do we do? We turn to control and we turn to outrage as ways of company, uh, coping with our fears, with our exhaustion, and with our worries. Tara Burton, in an essay reflecting upon the coronavirus, says that our reaction to the coronavirus at the personal level our desire to stockpile hundreds of dollars worth of hand sanitizer, which is less effective than soap and water, or to leave places where there is no reported threat, is also a statement about our need of control, our control of our bodies and control of our world. That's what makes the mere possibility of sickness and death that now dominates our news cycle so strange. It reveals precisely how incorporeal and disengaged our daily lives tend to be. It's something we Christians who practice in the liturgical tradition feel fleetingly as the ashes are pressed onto our foreheads once a year. A wobbly need quickening in the face of mortality that vanishes almost as soon as we totter back out through the church door, she says. The statements about mortality that we make on Ash Wednesday and indeed throughout Lent as we come to the realization that we too will die because these images of death have almost vanished from the rest of our cultural consciousness. We forget that we are mortal bodies, indeed that we are mere bodies at all, that our flesh is not just something, she writes, through judicious diet and tea, detox teas, and expensive exercise classes that exist purely under our own will jurisdiction. The Christian faith carries with it not simply an acknowledgement of the inevitability of death, but the promise of a bodily resurrection, which makes the proclamation all the more astounding and all the more seemingly out of step with an era in which our bodies are sacrosanct, in which our sickness is seen as such an alien part of the human condition. But yet as you read the Holy Scriptures, you read the lives of the saints that have come before us, you read the lives of the martyrs, you know that death and sickness is a part of the human condition. And that our hope is found in God through Jesus Christ who promises us that sickness and death are not the end. 
So what do we do in this time in which we worry about the outward attacks upon our body? C.S. Lewis, writing and reflecting upon an age in which atomic bombs were reality, told those who listened to not live in fear of the atomic bomb, that if an atomic bomb were to find itself in our lives, that we should go on living life And that atomic bomb should find us playing and reading, laughing, and weeping. But the difference in when Lewis is writing and the time now is that we are asked to disengage from those very social activities which often bring us joy. Now, as an introvert, I can tell you that being told I must stay in my house and read a book is not the worst thing that I have ever been told. <laughs> but a world that is already described as lonely and disconnected and isolated is asked to do it all the more. Maybe you're like me and you said, isn't this whole thing just overblown? Maybe we're making too big a deal out of it. Maybe We are overreacting. Talking to many of my clergy colleagues, our greatest fear was not that we would get the coronavirus, but that we would unwittingly and unknowingly pass it on to somebody else, causing their illness and possibly their death. What makes this disease so scary is is that many people are carriers of it and show no symptoms. And also what makes it frightening is is that we don't have adequate tests yet to determine who has it and who doesn't. As one person said, just live your life as though you do have it. The disruption of this disease will be most felt in um, in those communities that already feel isolated and hurt. Dr. Leddett on the phone this week and talking about what our reaction would be, said, I want you to just know this one statistic. He said, the best information we have is that if you are 60 to 69 and you get this, there's a 2% chance that you will die. He goes, if you're 70 to 79, there's a 4% chance that you will die. And the numbers keep on increasing rapidly. So social distancing is the very thing that we have to do, which seems to go against the Christian um, value and virtue of community and of gathering. So what I invite you who are strong, who are healthy, is to jump in where you can and where it is appropriate. Disengage, find ways to communicate over phone, over Zoom, reach out to somebody Find out if your neighbor's running out of toilet paper. Don't hoard the toilet paper and wash your hands. This is not the first time that Christians have had to wrestle with these questions. Martin Luther wrote about this and reflected on it, and I want to share part of what he said. In 1527, during the spread of a plague, Luther wrote a letter concerning how Christians should respond, and he gives the same kind of practical advice that we hear today, such as stay home if you are sick, 
or think you may have contracted the disease, take medicine, listen to physicians. Most importantly as a preacher, Luther assails are gripping for control in, certain, in situations of uncertainty. Chad Bird notes that first, that an abundance of fear causes one to forget that they have been delivered in Christ. That they wrongly think death is the worst thing that they can face. Second, he says, they focus on preserving themselves at the expense of their neighbor. Luther writes, in this way, such a person tries to bring about that we despair, despair of God. To become unwilling and unprepared to die. To become so enveloped in dark and clouds of fear and worry that we forget and lose sight of Christ, our light in our life, forsake our neighbor in his need, and so sin against God and against man. Amen.